the image is of um, the bike uh, perched up alongside the bench. And the light is kind of shining down the road on the greenway. And um, yeah, I mean, like, this is, a, it's in so many ways, it feels like a vestige of a formal era. Like, we, you know, we stopped printing postcards in like 2010 and we started doing digital stuff. Like, this is an, a printed postcard from one of those very first bike themed exhibits. And that's probably why, I mean, he was an avid cyclist and uh, an avid cyclist, not like spandex cyclist, but like he used to bike, you know? <laughs> uh, just you hear that word avid cyclist and you think of something else. But I mean, like he was like a, a bike advocate. This is why he participated in the West Bank ride. Things that promoted cycling, things that um, promoted getting people out of their cars and on bikes, you know? Stood out to me and it also made me feel like when I saw this here, it's like, it like touched my heart, you know? still had the postcard up right by his bedroom um so that was a little emotional to find um felt like I was doing my job well when I was doing events that he would come to you're listening to quoted the question of the day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. This is where we start with a question and see where the conversation goes. In this episode, we're talking about surviving the apocalypse. We begin with Michael Kleber Diggs. He recently joined us for a quoted social and storytelling event. It was a great time. Brian and I enjoyed seeing everybody. If you want to be invited to the next event, please sign up for the newsletter at questionpodcast.com. It was a pleasure to hear Michael Kleber Dix. Thank you. I'm so honored uh, to be here and to share uh, this piece. Um, So thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Brian. I also want to thank Urban Forage and whoever shoveled the steps coming in I couldn't get over that I like I don't I'm like these have to be heated but uh, excellent work there so this is a story called disaster plan um, yeah disaster plan I can't tell you the path I followed, but one dark evening in November 2016, I found myself perusing bug out bags. This is unusual. I'm not a prepper. I spend no time contemplating doomsday, and I'm not good at worrying. I tend to assume everything will work out okay, and because I'm lucky and have resources, I've managed to maintain that assumption well into my life. Like I said, I can't tell you how I got to the site. I was roaming the internet in a frantic fugue, likely brought on by a newly arrived fear of fascism and a concern, suppressed apparently, that shit was about to go down. I'm clueless in the survival arts and I know it. 
Well, not totally clueless. I'm a member of a famous outdoors cooperative. I know how to unzip a freeze-dried meal. I can start a fire using those fire kits they have. I know how to erect and disassemble a tent and when to hang my food from a tree. You've never seen anyone compress a sleeping bag like me. I've pumped water through an iodine filter thingy before, and I can portage like a pro. I feel like I could learn to read a map if I went to a seminar or something. So eventually I'd get the hang of orienteering if I had to. But I've always assumed that when the apocalypse arrived, I would, for lack of useful skills, find myself not selected for any survival team. Hi, I'm Sarah. I usually try to overtip, partly because I used to work for tips. I still do work for tips. And also, I'm not that good at math. I see. Um, I try to err on the other side. I have held full-time jobs in at least four different states. New York, Connecticut, Iowa, and Minnesota. Back in the 60s, I was standing on Grand Avenue, Grand and, Grand and Milton, standing there waiting for a bus. And this guy drives by, and he gets out of his car, and he comes up to me, and he goes, would you be my model? Wow. What? Because <laughs> I'm importing some Norwegian sweaters, and I think you look really Scandinavian, and I'd like you to be my model. I am a cat person. <laughs> Hi, my name's Dave, and I have had a podcast. I would like to have a podcast again. I was a three-time state wrestling champion. That's very interesting. I have played a murderer in a play. And not only did I attend a show where there about were less than six people in the audience, I was in a show that had less than six people in the audience. Broke the world's record in 96. I made the longest bicycle in the world, and I played the cowboy. I was joining the circus. Wow. Even though I don't think of myself as embracing life in a static form, I can recall many times that I've used the word diorama in a sentence. Thirty seconds. What's your brand? Go. Whereupon I would, considering my options, a, a slow, painful death, or b, creating my perfect day and seeing after my final correspondence, dear mom, dear brother, dear wife, dear daughter, dear friends, make my exit voluntarily. I would be content to skip any gradual horrors that might await me. I'd choose option B. Wait, you know these terms, right? A prepper is a person who subscribes to survivalism. Survivalism is, according to Wikipedia, a primarily American movement of individuals or groups who are actively preparing for emergencies, including possible disruptions in social or political order on scales from local to international. There are TV shows about this. I've seen part of one. I know, for example, that PVC pipe is important to the movement. I've always thought that preppers are nuts, 
And I've always felt just fine feeling that way because I know they think unprepared people like me are nuts too. And a bug out bag is defined also by Wikipedia as a portable kit that normally contains the items one would need to survive for 72 hours when evacuating from a disaster. However, some kits are designed and last longer for longer periods. But for bug out bags, the focus is on evacuation rather than long-term survival, distinguishing the bug out bag from a survival kit. So the bug out bag is for me because when things go down and I haven't been selected for a survival team and I'm at great risk to starve or be eaten or get shot or thrown into some kind of internment situation, I would need 72 hours to write my letters and send every poem and essay I've ever written to a writer who might live long enough to see them published in my collected works or handed down to my descendants or at least edited and polished up a bit. I'd need 72 hours to plan and stage my perfect day, 72 hours to prep, if you will. Quick aside, I have a specific writer in mind. His name is Dr. Drew Lanham. He's an outdoorsy type. He's brother nature from word go. He hunts and fishes. He knows a lot about birds. I think he knows what to eat and what will kill you. Unlike most writers I know, many of whom are allergic to the sun, he could last and last and last outdoors. Chester died a few years ago, um, and I remember the story of you know reading about how Marsha just you know they were sleeping and then it was in the winter time and Chester got really cold and and you know and Marsha she wandered off and and found a, the police or something and described Chester anyway it's just really heartbreaking because they were they were just inseparable. Uh, we're under the Tenth Avenue Bridge in uh, Chester and Marsha's camp. This is this is their home. This is where they lived. This is where they invited friends. You know he drank a lot too. He enjoyed drinking, and he wasn't a mean alcoholic. He was, in, you know, but he, um, I think he had a heart attack or something, something like that. And I heard Marsha, too, died on one of those 100-degree days, and I don't think they did an autopsy, but I imagine it was some heat-related thing that, that got her, you know. So it's a tough life out here. Chester, as long as I knew him, since the early 90s, I think I met him in 92. He was the guy riding a bicycle with a top hat and a beard. I don't think he ever punched a goddamn time card. I don't remember him doing it. I know that. <laughs> but somehow he made it, you know. We uh, said goodbye to Chester and to Marsha individually, but this is really about this place now, too, which um, a place is kind of like a person. You grow to know it you know, a little bit and to like it, and somehow, like a person, when it when it's ready to go, you get to know it the most. It's almost like there's an enchantment or a glamour protecting this place. But as this world gets more and more sterilized and sanitized and gentrified and the monoculture takes over, um, this is like we're, we're standing in a little enchanted, this is like the 1970s. Or is it more ancient than that? Is it a deeper current? Is this something really ancient that we're kind of in right now? He didn't just dabble in it. He was that 100%. When you can live that way, where, where you're not on the, on the clock, I think that's a good thing. And I feel like more people should have that available to them.
and I, I wish I could pull it off all the time. And so do a lot of the artists in this town and, and all over the place. There was no dabbling at all with him. They're like a dying breed, and uh, I think of the West Bank. It's like, it's kind of horrible right now compared to the West Bank when I was 16. I think I've told the story a couple times when I was 16. I took the bus over from Sleepy St. Paul. I got off on Cedar and Riverside, and there was Chester with a big snapping turtle. He had it by the tail, and its head was reaching back. It was trying to bite him, and he had a top hat on, and he looked like Phineas Freak Brother, and I was like, what is going on? And he said, I'm going to make soup out of it. And I was just like, what the hell? And I think of the West Bank, what it was, and, and the world, the Lower East Side of Manhattan, everywhere. And, and this is like, a, we're in a strange back eddy. It's kind of a privilege to be standing here right now in this, in this world. It's, it's about Chester and Marsha, and, and it's also, it's about something much bigger and a deeper current that's disappearing in this world. And I think they made a place, a, a beautiful place under here, which most people wouldn't think of, of homeless people doing as making some, a, a, making a home. But they really made a home here. Chester and Marsha were kind of alchemists in a way, just working with upcycled and recycled. They were transforming junk and spinning straw into gold, and, and they, were, they, were, they were kind of amazing. It, and it was a lot more beautiful when, when Marsha and, and Chester were here. So You know, she died in June, and I, from what I've heard, it's been, it's been left to people ransacking it for quite a while. It has decayed a little bit. So, so I don't know. That I, I mean, in a way, they weren't homeless, in a way, because they really, really made a home for themselves and managed to hold on to it. And I was just talking to uh, Denny uh, with the Department of Bridges. I've been with the city for 31 years, oh, so yeah. I've been coming down here talking to these guys for some time. They kept it clean, we kind of uh, let them stay around here and they kind of kept everything up and watched over the parking lot. These guys were living down here and they had a cool thing going on and Denny recognized that and he said, all right, he, he's a, a kind of a square cat and um, he allowed this to go on because they were decent people and they weren't just down here like banging drugs and robbing people. He's a compelling person. There's very few compelling people around. The reason he was able to be here so long is because he is compelling. Um, politicians looked at him and, 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 and understood that and building owners let him live off their loading dock. You know, and the Park Service let this stay here, you know, for how long? Um, it's because he was a compelling man. So yeah, he, he bridged gaps. He, that's what compelling people do. They make you different than you were when you met them. You know, that's how you notice them. You've read some of Chester's history, his, his obituary and all that other stuff under the name of Bruce or whatever, yeah. Yeah, maybe he was forced to be compelling to survive. You know, he needed to get people to help him, and he found a way to do it. I'm a street musician too, and so I play for tips, and I consider it work, and contributing something. And and I I've, I don't I don't remember them ever asking me for money. I think they always were working in one way and trying to make their own way, which I respect. You know, um, and I and I don't. I, I don't necessarily fault people for having to do it the other way too. Anyway, so I knew them and uh, Chester, his accordion got 
stolen or broke, and then they found an accordion. I repair accordions too. So I, I ended up repairing an accordion for Chester, and it was really funny when I had to meet them because they, uh, you know, they, there was no way to get a hold of them, no phone, no nothing, but I ran into them at a cafe on the West Bank, and, uh, and they were just like, okay, here's the accordion, we'll meet you here, and same place, same time, in like two weeks or whatever it was, and so I went back and I fixed it. And, and Marsha, even though they were homeless, you know, Marsha, she wanted to pay me, and I didn't take any money, but she wanted to, you know, you know, and, and um, about a year later, Chester died. Yeah, I was <laughs> working in the real estate field, and we made an offer on a building, and Chester's encampment uh, butted up to the uh, loading dock. And I inspected the building and walked back, and I said, what's with all that shit off the loading dock? And the guy said, you remember Chester? Said, yeah, that's where he lives. My client's got a problem with that. I said, well, the problem is the building doesn't get sold unless Chester lives off the loading dock. Chester outlived the building and outlived everything else around him, you know? Whatever the theory is, why it was able to be here for so long, it's going to be a loss for this enchanting space to be gone, this person's home. I mean, imagine how... If there was like an iconic artist of some kind, or if there was another person in Minneapolis and they were, the city was just going to come in and graze their home. I mean, that would be, people would create a story about that. This is tricky because it's, it calls into question people's notion on like ownership and a sense of space and who owns the space and who has a right to the space. And um, I think that's, that's a tricky and sensitive topic for some people. Um, I think the people that are here now just appreciate that this was his home. This was Marsha's home. And this is where they built a life. And it's sad to see that go, just as it's been sad to see their lives go. Here's what a bug out bag often contains two liters of water per person per day, extra water for pets, non-perishable food, enough for three to five days, multivitamins, a first aid kit, necessary clothing, fire starting kits, a disaster plan, which I think is ironic because I think the bag itself is a plan, <laughs> professional emergency literature explaining what to do in various kinds of disasters, maps and travel information, standard camping equipment, weather-appropriate clothing, bedding items, enough medicine to last for an extended period, copies of each person's medical records, pet, child, and elderly care needs, a battery or crank-operated radio, lightning, cash, a positive ID, like a driver's license or social security card or passports, or your birth certificate, a fixed blade and a folding knife, a Swiss Army knife, a multi-tool kit like a Leatherman, duct tape, rope or paracord, tarpaulins, wire for binding and animal traps, a compass, firearms and extra ammunition, a slingshot, a pellet gun, a blowgun, or some small game hunting equipment, a small fishing kit, a signal mirror, emergency whistle, digestive care medicine, tampons, trash bags, aluminum foil, bandanas, super glue, a hatchet, and pepper spray but not apparently a pepper mill. Here's what I think a bug out bag should also hold. A pepper mill. 
a cell phone, a book, a copy of Moby Dick, or Crime and Punishment, or the collected poems of Audre Lorde, or all three. A way to play music. Some kind of device on which my favorite songs can be heard in a world without power or radio signals. I was thinking my iPod fully charged. Photos. My 10 or so favorites. Black licorice. Enough for five days. A deck of cards and at least five dice. I can figure out the rest, the top half, three of a kind, four of a kind, full house, small straight, large straight, Yahtzee, and chance. A notebook, pencils, stamps, envelopes, a bottle of bourbon, a letter I received once when things weren't going well. My most important portable thing, I'm hoping for enough time to figure out what that is, one or two slim boxes of those shortbread cookies I like so much, and a toaster. <laughs> Chester's comic books are pasted to the rear window where we used to put the decals from trips when, when I, was I was a kid. kid. A desiccated accordion. Chain links. A bottle of wine. Steel wool pads. Skates. The backside of this yellow vehicle, sort of an old city's work truck. Big old yellow a number vehicle. of chairs from an old bus, possibly. Bike wheels, burly wheels, a tin can, a number of, a chairs. Number of chairs, two stuffed birds, dark, dark with, with age, age. Uh, cooking elements and plates and things like that. A pair of black inline skates. Wheels. A fire. A place where there's been a fire. There's a tent. Bike wheels. A black cat teapot. A black kitten sugar bowl. His art. A gourd. Meryl Street. A tray of metal. Bob Dylan. A nativity Helen in Hunt. glass. In fake gilt frames. A tin can. Metal poles stuck in an empty tidy cat bucket. A gray Chevy celebrity from Nias Chevrolet Buick Pillows in Staples, and, uh, Minnesota. Bedding. Full in the pack. Chain links. A rakehead chain on top. links. Links of chain. Nestle's Nido Dry Hole Milk. Yellow. Upside down next to the station wagon's driver's door. Inside the station wagon, some purple Baskets pails and clothes and bags Vikings. and broken pieces lined up on the bumper. Inside the car. Ceramic a number of, number of chairs. chairs. Snowmen in blue hats. The center area. Blankets, all draped. Candles, There's a tent. Garden chairs. Have their library. That look fairly new. See their kitchen. Stuck firmly up to mid-blade in a stump. Sheltered by broken umbrellas. A bottle of wine, half open with the cork still in it. A picture of a shark chasing a human foot. Everywhere the dirty clothes and jeans and, and down and ripped, ripped and painted and dirty. Painted and dirty. And at least uh, three sex towels. You have these, right? Sex towels in your nightstand for cleaning up. I kind of assume we'll need our sex towels mid-apocalypse. We'll need closeness and comfort. We'll need intimacy and hope. We'll need escape and ecstasy. We'll find ourselves returned to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs if we were ever there, down to the basics, the physiological taking precedence even over our safety, our bodies longing, longing like they're made to do. Longing for food, for water, for air, for touch, for society, and spunk. Release. I'm afraid again. I'm afraid like I was when I was 12. Old enough to understand, but not yet old enough to get it. 
experiencing again the compression brought on by forces beyond my control or influence. I shake my legs sometimes. I'm back to Brezhnev and Reagan and brinksmanship and risk. Back to boys with toys. We're talking about nuclear fallout and the half-life of uranium again. I find myself asking what good is a gun if one never shoots it. No one can holster a gun forever. It has to go off eventually. After a certain point, we want to know. I'm back to inadequate drills at school and church. I'm back to folly. Radiation won't reach me if I'm under a desk. I'm wondering about Star Wars missile defense systems and Googling SALT and SALT 2. Emergency preparedness drills, that's what I'm doing. That's what brought me to the bug out page. I'm preparing. I'm getting ready for doomsday, whether I want to admit it or not. Because before the starter pistol sounds, you train. You pack your shoes and suit into a duffel. You stretch and awaken your muscles, major and minor. You size up the other runners and assess your chances in every heat. You prepare or you perish. And what is life? How do we define it? Is it abundance or enough? Is it freedom? Is it joy? Is it family and community and creation and art? Is it survival? Is it hope? On Wikipedia, I read that in the Antichrist, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, hope in its stronger forms is a great deal more powerful stimulant to life than any sort of realized joy can ever be. Man must be sustained in suffering by a hope so high that no conflict with actuality can dash it. So high indeed that no fulfillment can satisfy it. A hope reaching out beyond this world. What then of hopelessness? Can things get so bleak that we're left without hope to set against our suffering? Can suffering expand to obliterate hope? When do we know? Is that what the bug out bag is for? Is it meant to buy us time to figure this out? Is it utility? Now, let's talk about your accomplishments. Um, let's see. I ended up in someone else's clothes, although I don't know who they were. This was at Burning Man, and, and it was trying to get my female on. According to my wife, I did not look very good. I saw Bonnie Reed in a coffee shop in Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm, I see. A coffee shop. I have seen the skyline of Minneapolis and St. Anthony Falls from a place that is definitely not open to the public, the uh, gold level of the gold medal flower sign. I'm Larry, and uh, I guess you could say I set off a house alarm by proxy, uh, set my alarm for my home, knowing my sister was coming. I'd given her a key, but she did not know the password. I was one of the poets on buses. My name is Marie, and I religiously go to the state fair, and I always do see the butterheads, maybe the cedar. I got kicked out of a bar. My friend Vernon and I were in downtown St. Paul and decided we'd like to have a beer. And so we went to the St. Paul Hotel Bar. And as soon as they saw us walk in with a baby, they kicked us out. How do you deal with conflict? For example, an invasion of ants. 
I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a friend, I'm a storyteller, a documenter, a historian of sorts. In my study, I've learned that men can be strange in their intimacy. One of the nicest things a male friend has ever said to me was said at a bar when we were joking about what skills we would bring to a survival team. I said none and laughed. My friend grew serious. He said, no, Michael. We would need someone to keep the group together. We would need someone to make us laugh. We would need people to write things down, how we were, how we are, how we might be. And okay, maybe that comment isn't so unique to me. There are lots of people who can do those things and tie a bunch of different knots and treat a wound and throw a spear. But the point is, I love him too. Love. Oh yes, love. I still haven't packed my bag. I surfed the web in November of 2016 and landed on a site about survival, largely an American phenomenon something favored by people who have long felt that the world, if ever it is undone, might be worthy of resurrection. A peculiar kind of hopefulness there. Sometimes when fascism flashes up or a missile is launched or a taunting tweet is sent, dread, the shape of despair, will nibble at my day. I'll arrive home after my shift, check in with her and her, Say hi to the dogs and cats. Open a bottle of wine that won't be emptied tonight, no matter what. And power up the machine that never really powers down. Check in with social media. Surf the net. I don't have a disaster plan because I've never needed one. This places me in a particular category of risk and hope and joy. In the dark of my house, warmed by no more than two decent glasses of wine, surrounded by creatures and comforts, enchanted by the basic blue light of some screen or another, I confront the repository of all human knowledge with everything right there in my grasp. I almost always find what I need to survive. What are you most proud of? This was, this was a home that they built, and they really, it was an unusual relationship and an unusual, unusual situation, but they really loved each other. He always had a devoted partner, even through the winter. Uh, often women were fighting over him. And I can think of guys who uh, bathe regularly and have nice jobs who can't pull that off. So I, it was kind of amazing. They were in the Skyway playing and Chester was banging on some kind of triangle or something and Marsha was playing her violin. And they had this, they had brought like 10 or 15 feet of stuffed animals. They had this stuffed animal display all the way up and down the Skyway as part of their act. <laughs> it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> It matters that we're saying goodbye to this place because um, it's part of the counter culture. There's a lot of culture that needs countering in this world and this has always been a place where that happened in the West Bank. It happened before Chester. 
He was part of it, and it'll happen after. You know, Marsha was a little bit of a hothead sometimes, but but everyone, but once you got to know her, you, you realized she was a lovely person. They really cared for each other very much. Marsha, she clearly was felt like she was looking out for Chester, and Chester was doing the same thing for her secretly, worrying about Marsha and looking after Marsha. So it was just a very sweet relationship that the two had together. He would leave little drawings. <laughs> so I know that he came because he had left a drawing. Most of Chester's art looked a little like himself. He was kind of doing self-portraits. Yep, and they're, they're based on people that he was just lambasting like over decades, these people. And some of them were like, hadn't even been seen on the West Bank. You know, Glimpy, right? And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, I know Glimpy. But uh, <laughs> Glimpy was the dumbest man in America. But it was based on like this guy he knew. I, I believe they all were. Apparently, the musicians were kicked out of the Skyway because Marsha and John got in a fist fight over a spot. John, no, John, the violin player. Violin player John. They got in a fist fight and the police came and then that's when the, when the, so apparently, that's the story I got. Well, I don't know. I could kind of imagine it knowing both of them. <laughs> yes or no, it's my way or the highway. These parquet floors have got to go. Hmm. I like a white kitchen. The bonus room is nice. This basement feels like a dungeon. I mean, how's that a master bedroom? I like the his and her sinks. The popcorn ceiling has this got to This could be go. your man cave. This bathroom is a gut job. There's no room for an island in this kitchen. Mm-hmm. Is that chandelier from the 80s? Yes or it's no? It's a little outdated. People usually get what they deserve. There is no way my shoes are going to fit in this closet. Mm-hmm, I see. I was really hoping for a walk-in. Mm, wow. Granite countertops are a nice touch. Darn, I was really hoping for a farm sink. The high-end fixtures. With our lifestyle, a three-car garage is a must. I see. I, I can see kids playing in the backyard. Not ours, but kids. <laughs> yes or no. You rely a lot on gut feelings. We would just need to take down a couple of walls to make this the perfect entertaining space for all of our friends. Yes or no. I really need that open concept living. You feel that people are basically good. I think this room is a good size for a kid. Babe, that's that's a cupboard under the stairs. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, this room is good for my cats. We want at least four bathrooms. Timmy likes to poop a lot. Yes or no. You are typically on time for appointments. I don't like that the office would have to double as a guest room. What if I need to work when your mom comes to visit? She likes to sleep naked. I guess we could make a two-car garage work. I love the outdoor living space. It's perfect for our lifestyle. Thanks a lot. We'll let you know. The city said over the next couple weeks they're going to be taking things down. I just heard today. I didn't realize there were so many people here, but I guess they've been down here for a little while. And uh, oh, I can't blame them with all the goddamn rain lately. But uh. Nothing lasts forever, and this was somebody else's place. I didn't know the whole story about Marsha and Chester. Yeah, it's really a shame this place is getting torn down. It's really neat down here. What I'm doing is I'm trying to get a job so I can stop this nonsense of staying outside. It's cold in winter. I've already done eight years. I don't want to do another. I just wanted to build onto it, have my part in it. Parents kicked me out of my 18th birthday because I don't love Jesus, and I've been homeless ever since. I'm autistic. 
Um, at first, I chose to be homeless, and I thought I was going to travel, but just kind of got stuck here. Um, I applied yesterday to, um, I'm not going to tell you where, but it's a dishwashing job right now, but they're going to train me to be a line cook, and uh, once that opens up, I'll do that. So it seemed like an adventure, and I'm an alcoholic, and I just got stuck out here. Yeah, and I guess I'm just, um, I'm just trying to prolong what I have to do. You know, I don't, are any of you guys old enough to have been around here back in the early 70s? I mean, I'm old enough. I remember huh. back when this wasn't a clean place to hang out. Um, you know, I had my dogs used to wake people up sleeping under the leaves every morning. That was, that was the flats. And this is like the last of it. You know, he was the final holdout. Um, at least significant. And it's all getting claimed up and turned into the city again. Which, I don't know, good or bad, I don't know. There's people still living down here, so, you know, I'm going to try and help anybody any way I can. I got storage space if they need it and stuff, so. We've been trying to work with historical preservation to see if there are ele any elements that could be saved. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there's any place that will be able to house it, but I also don't know if that would be appropriate. I would feel super weird if this was like a part of a museum, but it also feels like this is amazing. This should be preserved in some way, do you know? For them to maybe have not had all the resources they needed, but then all of a sudden it's like, hey, let's like stick this and put it in a museum that has, you know, so the, I mean, I guess that's one way to describe it as like, their home then will have steady heat and light and housing, but they never had that amenity. So there's something that feels very wrong and somewhat hypocritical about that. a 50-inch plasma TV that sits sideways in my office that's only been turned on twice. Do you use this? And isn't mounted to anything. Do you love it? Does it bring you but joy? But I can see the back of it really well. And she said, what is this? I said, I don't know. And so we opened it up and it was t-shirts. I have a bunch of old cookbooks. Do you wear these? And I said, no. And she said, well, okay. And she picked it up and took it over and put it in the Goodwill. I also have a lot of old t-shirts. Pulled one of the shirts out and it was an old yellow kind of faded, it had sunshine and sparkles but it still had a wine stain on it from a Doobie Brother concert. Pulled out another one, and it was a Wellstone shirt that he'd signed. Trophies about a lot of things I used to do that I don't do anymore. Put it up back up on the shelf. So that makes them really stupid. And then there are the left-handed golf clubs that my left-handed mother left me. Yeah, she was five foot one. Describe how you deal with yeah. conflict. My sons-in-law are both real golf nuts. You know, they're pretty good. You know, a, a, a par four or maybe even one under. I will go out and play golf with them and try to play golf with these left-handed golf clubs for a five-foot-one, you know, woman. I know I should get rid of them, but it's like my mother left me these, right? And I should learn how to play left-handed. I have too many clothes. Broken computer parts. My original teddy bear. A lot of old magazines. A New York Times Sunday entertainment section that has an initial review of rent. Beerstein. Old golf clubs. Wedding dress from my first wedding. Ventriloquism made easy. Drinking glasses. My dad's rosary. A 30-year-old bottle of nail polish. Chewed shoes. My old vinyl that I have not listened to in years. This protein powder I bought in 2013. Love song. The way. Larry Norman, Money Tree, etc. I am keeping this nail polish as a symbol of my lawless days. That's going to be uh, left to somebody in my estate. 
very interesting. Tell me more about it. So attached to a place that I used to work um, is an abandoned grain elevator. And if you climb uh, about 120 feet up the iron steps, some of them missing treads, uh, some of them cracked um, with a long way down if you miss. Not far from the F wall um, and the I got syphilis uh, pillar and um, naked woman with pants, um, there was a big pile of bird poop and embedded in the bird poop was an old pair of ripped up Calvin Klein underwear. We're not sure whether somebody dropped it there or whether the birds brought it in. Um, and a toothbrush. Now, one of the, one of the people who worked at, uh, at my old workplace, a uh, balding gentleman with glasses, kind of was a little bit over-fascinated with this, uh, this underwear and actually projected forward a dream that if he got rich... He would, uh, he would mount those underwear the same way they do with sports jerseys and, uh, and open a bar called Grundy's um, in the upper part of that grain elevator if it was ever rehabbed. As time went on, you know, he kept that dream alive. They did clean out the grain elevator, and, uh, and this gentleman wasn't sure what happened to the underwear, but, uh, but the elevator was all cleaned out so that it was safer for people and uh, not as dangerous to breathe the air. And when that gentleman retired... The uh, exhibit technicians at his museum uh, professionally mounted the uh, dirty underwear um, in acrylic, and uh, and that gentleman um, took that home. Now, now uh, society frowns on really old underwear of unknown origin, still festooned with guano in places, um, hanging on your uh, living room wall, but uh, I'm not getting rid of them. I'm Mary Jane Leving. <laughs> that was a wonderful event. Yeah. Oh, we had a great time. Yeah, it was kind of unexpected and really fun, and the people were really interesting. You could tell that they were interesting, but you couldn't, you sort of had a little peek into them. I'm pretty sure that a human being left the poop on the stoop of the new House of Balls. It was springtime. We had owned the building on the tattered edge of downtown Minneapolis for a few months. The clock tower on Old City Hall was still visible through the girders of the new Viking Stadium that rose like a turkey carcass across 35W. This is our studio and a place for us to stay in the city. My husband, Alan, makes found object sculpture, He's known for carving faces into bowling balls, and that's the origin of the name House of Balls. Built as a gas station in 1931, our building squats on a quarter acre of asphalt, fronted by freeways that veer and merge like a sketch by Escher. The studio is on a cul-de-sac across the light rail track, a fingernail clipping of 7th Street, once a major route out of downtown swathed by the exit from westbound I-94, an isolated crossroads, alone at the center of everything. Parked in our lot is a 66 Ford truck named Elmer, a travel trailer painted like a loaf of Wonder Bread, and a polar bear the size of a furniture truck. The bear is a cross between a parade float and a puppet. The wind off the exit ramp animates its cantilevered head, and ruffles the shaggy plastic strips around its neck. 
Out back, there's a small garden with a snake sculpture and a log bench. The House of Balls is a modest paradise, but next to my children, it's the best I have to show for my life. I took the shit at the door too personally. In the tidy suburb where I've lived for the last 30 years, we bag dog droppings. I pondered whether the feces was a statement about gentrification or a stunt from the punks who ran the defunct underground club that last occupied this address. Most likely a drunk, Alan said. Soon after the stoop pooping, he told me that someone had drawn on the garden bench. What the heck? In a nettle, I went out to take a look. I found a sketch, pressed by Sharpie marker, right into the big split pine that makes the seat. Just bigger than my open palm, it was a picture of a man in a top hat, holding a sign that said, Thank you. We never determined who left the shit, but the drawing was from Chester. Chester rides a bicycle in a tailcoat and a top hat, and carries a 40-ounce bottle of beer in his rear wire basket. He has red cheeks and a gray beard. He lives below the 10th Avenue Bridge in a compound formed by a construction shed and a derelict station wagon. Presided over by cats, decorated with plastic flowers and magazine pictures of Queen Victoria, his residence is on a bike trail, aside the freeway, adjacent to a parking garage, a postage stamp-sized holdout in the march of high-buck condos. Now it is summer. Across the freeway, plywood sheathing blocks the view of the clock tower. The new stadium looks like a vacant lot fort built by little boys. It's a Tuesday morning. Alan has left for his day job as an electrician for a mechanical contractor. I'm headed out, too. I've locked the door to the studio and paused near the big bear. The house of balls is tucked into the underarm of the exit, separated by a chain-link fence from the morning crawl of traffic. I make a game of reading faces lit by windshields, imagining lives I wouldn't swap. In the rearview mirror of an Audi, I catch the eye of a woman my daughter's age. For an instant, I see myself and my daughter up and down the ladder of time, and then it's just another car on Tuesday. Alan here? A voice behind me asks. It's Chester on the bench. I didn't see him until now. His Victorian clothing is vaguely spectral. Can you spare a beer? He smells like damp leaves. I go back in and get him a bottle of beer. He sips. His eyes twinkle like gum wrappers. He tips the lip of the bottle toward the puppet float. I come here to talk to your lion. It's a bear, I say, feeling dumb because it matters. No one on the ramp even sees the giant creature. Years ago, I used to take this exit. I was trading currency options for U.S. Bank and dreaming of working in London. I would have had no reason to notice this nondescript building, though I passed it every day. Had I known I was passing my future, I would have judged it paltry. The neck. That's a lion's neck, Chester persists. I can see that, I say. He reaches in his coat and hands me a homemade comic book, photocopied, quartered, with a stapled spine. I open The Fate of Millard Fillmore. Read it, says Chester, taking a pouch from his breast pocket and threading a rolling paper with tobacco. Now he's up in heaven playing bridge with the Roosevelts, I read to Chester. When I'm done, 
I don't ask why it's about Millard Fillmore or tell him that there's only one Ellen Roosevelt. I squint to recall the woman I was once, exiting here in my red Mustang, the button-down collar, the manly tie, with legs, I'd been told, like the legs of Marlena Dietrich. My eyes set on fortune, eschewing the society of morning drinkers. Now I see genius in a life as free as Chester's. Imagine never taking a personality inventory test, having an email address, opening a bank account, paying a cable bill, renewing your car insurance or your license tabs, shopping for a cell phone, or worrying about identity theft. Chester lives outside of that. Before a car crash killed his mother and sister, Chester was Bruce Nelson from Sherburne County. His father remarried a woman he did not like. In his teens, he started living on the street. Every dime he got went to smoking pot. It was the early 1970s. He panhandled in front of the old Dayton's on Nicollet Mall and seduced U of M co-eds for a spot to flop. He may have spent time in Haight-Ashbury, but mostly it was Cedar Riverside, the counterculture corner of Minneapolis. Eventually, he staked out a plot at the junction of jurisdictions and made himself useful shoveling snow in front of restaurants and keeping watch on parking lots. In 2007, the 35W bridge over the Mississippi River collapsed right next to Chester's place. Chester endeared himself to the construction crew and was rewarded with a shed for his homestead. He's a living leftover of the flower power era, like the macrame plant hangers you still see in some neighborhood picture windows. On the west bank of the Mississippi, just below St. Anthony Falls, Cedar Riverside has always been an immigrant neighborhood, outside the city limits. Beer gardens and dance halls sprouted where the Metropolitan Policing District ended. In the 1920s, boozy Norsemen spit so much snooze, that's wads of chewed tobacco, Cedar Avenue became known as Snooze Boulevard. In the 1970s, I was a Catholic girl from St. Paul. I remember coming over to the West Bank on a Sunday drive after Mass to look at the hippies. My father at the wheel of the station wagon that we called the Green Giant, my sisters and I riding unstrapped in the way back through the incensed air wafting from head shops, making peace signs at the long-haired college students who looked so different from the boys we knew. As we stopped for a light on Riverside Avenue, we watched them paint a mural on the side of a building. What's that supposed to be selling? I asked. I think it's supposed to be art, my mother said from the front seat. Now people regularly ask me what things are supposed to be. Is that truck supposed to look like a monster? Is that ductwork supposed to be a snake? Why do you have that giant bear thing? How come it's called the House of Balls? Is this some kind of business? You got legs like Marlene Dietrich is the first thing Kurt Sloan ever said to me. Right then and there, I decided he was a man of rare discernment. We were on the north shore of Lake Calhoun. We'd been windsurfing, which was a new thing in the early 1980s. I've hung on to that compliment for 33 years. I was smiling about it right now as Kurt and I talk at a gathering of old friends. The garage doors of the House of Balls are open to a beautiful late summer night. The Minneapolis nightscape unfolds like a pop-up book. They've begun to hang the sign on the east face of the stadium. Kurt and I are having a laugh because although it will say U.S. Bank Stadium, so far it says us sad.
we talk about complexity and Chester's untethered life. Kurt is my ex-husband's childhood friend and business partner at Quicksilver Courier. He was an artist with a hair like Jesus when I met him in the early 1980s. A founding member of In the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theater, Kurt once led the May Day Parade on stilts. After 40 years, focus on business, a wry tone, and interesting facial hair are the principal clues to his artsy past. Kurt is a way of seeing you as you want to be seen, a talent for asking about what you most want to discuss. He seems to share my arcane enthusiasms, like the history of stock speculation or the writing of William Least Heat Moon. His wife Helen is my close friend. We held each other's babies on the days they were born, carpooled, vacationed, and hosted sleepovers together. There was a Twin Peaks party in the brick bungalow on Midland, a surprise party with Kurt kidnapped by pirates, and triumph in the Shady Lane bike rally, where Kurt insisted that the plastic loving cup he'd won be displayed for a year on their mantle. Kurt is not a poser or given to flattery. He asks good questions. He knows how to keep his own counsel. When my first husband and I divorced, Kurt and Helen managed to keep both friendships. Neither my ex nor I made that easy. I think this was a reason the split turned out okay for me and also for my children. Kurt and Helen were there when Alan and I married and helped us move to the new house of balls. They have little in common, my friends Kurt and Chester. Caution and planning, follow-through, and regular work hours are at the center of Kurt's world. I don't think that's part of Chester's life. Kurt earns and manages money and smoothly attends to details of insurance and law. Kurt has planned for retirement and put children through college. Kurt rides a lightweight bike, wears a sleek bike suit, and carries only water in his bottle. He's fit and trim, as moderation and good fortune are apt to make you. Planning and good choices aside, one morning not long ago, Kurt was found dead in his bed. It was after a night of wild thunder and a Republican primary debate, though it's only me who connects these. It's only me who's connecting Chester's life to Kurt's, one from the city and one from the suburbs, lives that started the same year and diverging greatly touch again at the end, when all is leveled. Chester died a week after Kurt. I like to think that at the end he was stretched out in the way back of the shipwrecked station wagon, a purring cat cuddling his cooling body, while overhead on the 10th Avenue bridge, a quicksilver courier van passed in unknowing memoriam. Unknown to each other in life, but remembered together by me, I picture them together at a card table in heaven, playing bridge with the Roosevelts. The first snow of winter has covered the stoop and Chester's drawing on the bench. The bear's head nods and creaks beneath the cold blanket. A new ramp is being built. Next summer, the last car will arc down the exit to 5th Street. Against the white snow, the dark stadium is a ship of souls. I step out on the stoop where once I worried over unexplained poop. We are all immigrants in the land of the living, asking for an explanation. We cross and enter and exit, whizzing over and under and past, like the interchange in front of the house of balls. Someday I will be lost to death, 
alone at the center of everything. I will leave behind a pile of shit with sketchy explanations. And I'm recording this in Rebecca's basement on a very snowy day in March. This is playing bridge with the Roosevelts. You've been listening to Quoted, the Question of the Day podcast. I am Rebecca Smith. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode, including writers Michael Kleber Diggs and Mary Jane Levain. Also, thank you to everyone who showed up for the most recent quoted social and storytelling event at the Urban Forage Winery and Cider House. If you would like to find out more about quoted events where we aim to get you out of your house, away from screens and into a room full of really great people, you can sign up for the newsletter at questionpodcast.com. The music you heard is from Kevin McCloy. Links to all of this and more will be up on the website. Again, that's questionpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, take care. What do you know about lifeboats? Of the following, which is not a real nut? A clove hitch? A pepper mill? Or a man harness? How will people remember you when you're gone? <laughs>